0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us at Back to the Bible Canada. As we continue our current series in the book of Genesis, He Made Me Human, Dr. John Neufeld addresses a very relevant topic. Let's listen as we turn in our text to Genesis chapter 2, verses 4-17, to 17, with a message called, Finding Purpose in
1: Our Work. Bruce Walkie says that we all step out onto the stage of life without knowing who is the playwright or without having read the script. So we end up babbling out our empty lines without knowing what we're supposed to say. We'll look back upon life and we'll discover that we have turned a few somersaults and lounged on some sofas, engaged in some dialogues, been through a few file cabinets, played a love scene or two. But it's all disconnected. You see, there has been no plot. Waltke says that what makes this worse is not just that it's all meaningless in the end, but that it is censored and under the wrath of God, for it is a wasting of the most precious gift that anyone can possess, the gift of life itself. We should know who we are and what we're supposed to do when we step out onto the stage of life. The great tragedy is that we don't. You know, in a real way, Genesis chapter 2 is the script that tells us the role we play in the covenant or the binding agreement that God has made with the human race. Genesis 2 is the dramatic statement on how to live out the gift of life. But Genesis chapter 2 verses 4 to the end of the chapter is, in another sense, simply a dramatic repeat of Genesis 1, but from a different perspective. Rather than stating the creation from the perspective of the six days, Genesis 2 collapses the creation story into the formation of a garden with a man and a woman placed into the garden of God. Notice how the chapter is introduced in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The phrase, these are the generations, provides us with a heading for the chapter. But this heading makes it very clear that what is to follow is a record of Adam and all the generations that will follow him. So in effect, what we now read is the recounting of our story. For every single one of us who fit into the genealogy of Adam, and by the way, that's the entire human race, should read our story into this account. Now, the next thing that we should notice is a change in reference to God. A great many Bible teachers have noticed a fundamental difference between Genesis 1 and 2. God is always referred to simply as God throughout all the first chapter. Thirty-two times, Genesis 1, one to chapter 2, verse 3 calls Him God, or the Hebrew Elohim. But now His name changes. For the next eleven times, He is now referred to as the Lord God, or in Hebrew, Yahweh Elohim. You'll notice in your Bible that the letters L-O-R-D are all capitalized. That means that the Hebrew word being translated is the proper name of God, which is, yes, Yahweh. Now, the reason for this change is that we're supposed to notice that God has an arrangement with the peoples he creates, or that God reveals himself as the God of Covenant. God makes himself known to the people he creates as Yahweh, and they enter into a binding agreement with God, an agreement that God has arranged. Look at it this way. God has an intended life for us. The playwright has written a play, and we have been placed upon the stage to play out our part in the drama. I remember an evangelistic conversation I had with a young man. I explained to him that he was created to fulfill the purpose that God had for him. And he said, well, I never asked to be born. And he meant to say he didn't want to be in God's play. And it annoyed him to have a script imposed onto his life. But God didn't ask us if we wanted to be in his play, nor is he asking us now. It is God's play after all. It's God's world. And we are his actors. We will play out a role that will showcase the glory of the writer of the play. Okay, let's read verses four to seven. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens." You know, for those who argue that this text contradicts Genesis 1, in that man seems to be created when there was no vegetation, let's remember what we noticed earlier. Genesis 2 wants to show us creation from another perspective by collapsing the six days of creation into a few brief sentences. The point will not be the sequential ordering of creation, but that God made the man to work the earth, bringing it under his dominion, and all this passage wants to teach us is that there was a time before the creation of man when there was no one yet to work the ground. There were no ordinary agricultural operations. Man was created to rule over or exercise order over God's creation. That's all this text means to teach us. And during this time, Yahweh God formed man to work the ground. See, I love verse 7. Here is Yahweh God stooping over in the dust, shaping, forming, and then breathing out life. Job, when he was sick, remember this. And I'm reading from Job chapter 10, verses 8 to 11, where he says, Your hand shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese and clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? This is beautiful poetic language that expresses the wonder and the care that God took in our creation. Our bodies are a marvel of God. Our bodies are good. And I say this because some people have understood the body as a dirty thing or even a useless thing or even a sinful thing. The Greeks used to teach that the body was the prison house of the soul, and it was not until the body died that the soul could finally be set free. But that's not what's said here. Whereas God simply spoke the animals into existence, in our case, our bodies are specially designed by God with a great deal of care. You know, it's a tragedy how the television industry has treated the body. Bodies are now thought of in terms of the ideal of beauty and sexual appeal, rather than the beauty of the function to do what God designed them for. I think that's a tragedy, for it mocks the wonder of our Creator, who designed our bodies for the task God gave. But our bodies are not all that we are. God breathed His breath into these bodies. Something unseen is fundamental to our humanity. Now, we've already, in our study, noted that we're image bearers of God, and and I won't say any more about that here. So who are we? We are amazing, complex, wonderful creatures with capacity for covenant with our Creator. Everything we are comes back to that. All of the difficulties in life are solved in recognizing that. You can't understand life until you understand who you are. If you ignore your obligation to be in covenant with God, you're squandering and abusing your life. Your life comes with the manufacturer's instructions, or we are like actors in a play who have a role and purpose assigned to us. But how are we intended to live? Well, let's continue to read in verses 8 to 14. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put a tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and Ong stones are there. The name of the second is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. You know, I love the story of Eden. I love it because it is our intended home. All of us have heard the expression like a fish out of water. You know, when a fish gets out of water, it dies. doesn't help if you give it CPR or rush it into surgery or put a heart monitor on it and track its vital signs. All of that will fail because it was intended for water. You and I were intended for Eden. We are not now in Eden, and so we are dying. I must say that I have no idea where Eden was, but I can say a few things about it. I note that it was in the East. You know, in the Old Testament, East was a sign of life and West was a sign of death. The sun rose in the East and it set in the West. The second thing I noticed is that after I get beyond the trees in Eden, that there are four major rivers that flowed from Eden, bringing life and vibrancy to the earth. Now, I know that Of the four rivers mentioned today, we can only trace the Euphrates and the Tigris. Let's see if we can get some perspective. In Canada today, we have a number of places like London, Ontario or Surrey, British Columbia that take their name from the old country that is in England. And that's what I think happened when the Tigris and Euphrates rivers were named. I don't think that Eden had to have been in that location. It might have been that the Tigris and the Euphrates were named after the location from the old country, that is the country that Adam and Eve had once enjoyed. But the real point of the story is that Eden occupied a very high place. It was, if you will, like the mountain of God. I'll explain that when we come back.
0: As we begin to examine the creation of the first human beings, it's evident that God made them with a specific purpose in mind. He created all of us to be His agents in doing meaningful work and being productive. And above all, we're created to be in covenant relationship with Him now and forever. But today we're far from Eden, the place where we were designed to live. So where does that leave us? Well, Dr. Neufeld helps us understand that when we return. What makes a family? Family is a bond of body, heart, mind, and soul. And one way to nurture spiritual growth with our families is to share in a time of devotion. Homes are helped by a time and place to talk about the things of God. Family devotions may seem daunting, but help is on the way. This month, Laugh Again with Phil Calloway will release a new family devotional, Four Minutes for Frazzled Families. It's a 31-day devotional guide for parents or grandparents looking to provide spiritual leadership in their homes and for their families. Back to the Bible Canada believes these times of sharing together are critical for the spiritual growth of the family. So visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 to request 4 Minutes for Frazzled Families. And we'll send you and your family this helpful tool for free.
1: Since a major river flowed out of Eden, dividing into four rivers, it must mean that Eden was the highest piece of land. In fact, Eden might have been on top of a mountain. Later on, Ezekiel was to describe it exactly that way when he was describing the king of Tyre. He says of him, You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. And what amazing description of Eden. If Eden was on the holy mountain of God, we also note that later on, Moses met with God on a holy mountain called Sinai, and then later on again, we're told that the temple of God was built on a mountain called the Temple Mount. In the Old Testament, we learned that high places were places of worship. In fact, the New Testament borrows this language when it says in in Colossians 3, 1-2, we read, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. See, things above, high places, mountains. Eden is a place of worship, of holiness. It's a place where God would come in the evening, in the cool of the day, and speak with his covenant people. Let me use the fish analogy all over again. You were created for worship, and if you're out of that environment, you're dying. But we also notice that a garden speaks of God's provision, God's banqueting table. Let's notice the trees of Eden. I noticed that there were two features about them. The first is simply that the Bible says they were pleasing to the eye. They were a part of the physical beauty of the created order. But these trees were also good for food. So later on, Adam is told that he may freely eat from any tree in the garden. See, I noticed two things. First of all, it is free. Second, he is told to eat. Enjoy a hedonistic feast of delight. Now, I know that the world is not like that today. We live in a world where poverty and hunger are common. A significant part of the world will go to bed hungry today. But that's not because there's not enough food in this world. It's because of human selfishness, because of human evil. God intended us to live in fullness. And so this is a table of abundance. This is a table of fullness and not of lack. This is a table of riches and not of hunger. It's a table of laughter and joy and of completeness, not a table of lack and want. Notice that there are two very special trees in the garden. The first in the very center of the garden is the tree of life. So let's go ahead to Genesis 3, verse 22, and there we read, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. See, initially, God created this tree as a blessing so that we would live forever. That's why this tree shows up again in Revelation 2, verse 7, where it says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The same tree shows up in the new heavens and the new earth. It tells us that we were never intended to die. It is unnatural to us. Every time we stand at a graveside or go to a memorial service, we are reminded that something sinister has happened. We are being visited by the enemy of the human race. We are not in Eden. We were made to live in the east, but we're in the west. We were made to live on the mountaintop in the presence of God, but we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death. This is why I love communion. Jesus in John 6.54 said, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Lord's table is a tree of life. It's the promise that the broken body of Jesus is our healing, eternal healing in his presence. It's the promise that the wounds of Jesus and his blood that flowed down is that reconciliation with God that we so desperately needed. It is a table of potency for life. You know, but the most curious thing about the Garden of Eden is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. More than one person has asked why God would put a tree that would eventually mean the doom of the human race into the garden. But it is important to note that the Garden of Eden is an invitation to live. It is not a prison house with no escape. We'll deal with that in more detail when we come to chapter 3. The knowledge of good and evil, as we will see then, only becomes ominous if this knowledge is disconnected from God. See, once that happens, we fall from grace and we find ourselves not in the garden, but in the valley of the shadow of death. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. I notice that as the Pishon, one of the four rivers that flows from the headwaters of Eden, flows down, it comes to a land where there's gold as well as other minerals. One gets the sense that both in the tending of the garden and eventually in learning of the resources that the good earth provides, that Adam would learn how to exploit those resources in a way that would honor God and build a world that is surely beyond what we in our technological age can even imagine. And that's because for us, exploiting resources has too often ended in environmental wreckage rather than enhancing the beauty and resources that God has given us for our long-term good and for His glory. But before we get too far ahead on this track, let's read now verses 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You know, some of us are dumbfounded to learn that the intended life, paradise, the living out of the ideal, the script God has for us, includes, guess what? Work. We have always thought that work came after the fall. Well, surprise! So for all of you who are putting away every cent that you have until you reach the day when you'll never have to work again, and you can spend the last years of your life simply dropping out, here's my question. Why? And why do you envy those who don't have to work? See, this play, this drama of life is a drama of productivity, usefulness, accomplishments, and and goals. But it's not just about work. It's about keeping the garden of God. It's about ministry, about doing that which God is doing. You see, at the beginning of Genesis, God brings order into a chaotic world. Adam was to tend the garden so it would never be chaotic. He was to be about God's business of work, of creation, of ruling over the creation. Now, of course, we would be telling only half of the story if we ignore the reality that after the fall, work takes upon itself a new dimension. Adam is told that he will have to fight thorns and thistles, work that will now include a great deal of effort, the sweat of his brow, trying desperately to stay alive and keep poverty and hunger from his door. See, I do know that there are many who are trapped in jobs that are very difficult, either because of the work environment you find yourself in or the lack of reward that comes your way. But the answer to your dilemma is not to eliminate work. Proverbs 19:15 warns us that an idle person will suffer hunger. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6 tells us to keep away from people who walk, it says, in idleness. Sloth, idleness, the lack of things to do is always condemned in Scripture. We should not seek after these things. Our intended life is a life of productivity, a life where we exercise dominion over the work of God's hands. And that brings me back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As we're going to see later, the knowledge that is offered on that tree is a knowledge of good and evil divorced from submission to God, divorced from playing out our role in the play that God has written, divorced from the manufacturer's instructions. See, work, accomplishment, rest, worship— The eating of food, the appreciation of the beauty of God's abundant home, and the learning of wisdom, the earth is all there for us. But when any portion of that is divorced from submission to the Creator, to the Lord God who entered into a binding agreement with us, when that doesn't happen, we die. We were not created to be able to live without God. And that's the point of Genesis 2. When we play out our lives without the purpose of the scriptwriter, we will not survive.
0: John, thanks so much for today. You know, I was thinking, I love my job and I know you love what you do, but you know, we're privileged in that respect. There's a lot of people who are in difficult places of business and they're persecuted. How are, how are they to look at this whole idea of work?
1: You know, the fall is pervasive. There's no area of human endeavor or our own personalities that is untouched by the fall. And so work is just one of those areas where sin has invaded and taken that which is beautiful and given by God and has so corrupted it that some of us think that we can't even live with it. I think what we need to do is think of ways to redeem our work. I mean, some of us do need to find a different place that we can work, and I think that's okay. But I think we need to look at accomplishments and endeavor as part of the image of God in us and rejoice that God has made us to accomplish things for His glory. The picture of
0: Eden we're given in this passage sounds nothing like the broken, sin-cursed world we live in today. Yet it's a compelling reminder of what kind of a world God originally intended for us, one full of rich, abundant life. We've also been reminded today of the significance of work and its connection with who He designed us to be. Hopefully, you've been encouraged and even challenged by the study of Genesis 2 and what it tells us about the purpose of work. Moreover, that all of our activities here on earth are meant to be done under the Lordship of our Savior— Join us again tomorrow as we continue in our series, He Made Me Human, with a message entitled, Finding Purpose in Our Sexuality. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. At Back to the Bible Canada, we are so honoured when we hear how this ministry is impacting lives and deepening your walk with Christ. One listener wrote, thank you for continuing to spread His Word to the world. Your messages are always on point, impactful, and inspiring, true to His Word. May you continue to reach out and give others hope and promise, the hope and promise that only comes from accepting Christ as Lord and Saviour. If you've been encouraged, inspired, or moved in any way by a message from this ministry, we'd love to hear about it. To express your encouragement in the form of a gift, simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Or to leave your testimony, email info at backtothebible.ca or visit backtothebible.ca and click on contact. We'd love to hear from you.